Welcome to Cato Audio for January 2020. I'm Caleb Brown, and Happy New Year. In this month's offering, Senator Rand Paul details the case against socialism. Sir Paul Tucker discusses the Federal Reserve and its powers. Leszek Balsarowicz discusses the good and bad of political and economic transitions. And Keith Whittington discusses repugnant laws and judicial review. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. Trust. What does it mean for culture, prosperity? Does it really mean anything at all? We're going to talk about uh, why people study trust with Andrew Forrester, research associate here at the Cato Institute, and Alex Narasta, director of immigration studies. So, guys, you've uh, dug into this a little bit. Why do people care about this notion of trust uh, within groups, within countries? It's because people care about culture. People care about how the culture affects economic growth, affects income. Culture seems like it probably is important. It probably matters a lot. Uh, But economists haven't had a good way to measure culture over time. And trust is one of these measurements or factors that seems like it could work really well into the way economists view the world. It seems like it could be incorporated into economic models. And it seems like there's a lot of data available. There's a trust question. It's asked globally and inside the United States over a long period of time. So it has two things that economists love. The possibility, at least on the surface, of being put into models. And there's a lot of data available. All right. So, Andrew, when uh, researchers are looking at the trust literature or they're creating trust literature uh, in academic journals, what are the proxies that they're using for trust. On these surveys like the World Value Survey, the General Social Survey, and a lot of other different national surveys, they ask, so generally speaking, would you say that most people can be trusted or that you need to be very careful in dealing with people? And the main responses are most people can be trusted, can't be too careful, and it depends. So economists will usually use the response, can't be too careful is low trust, and the other two is high trust. So when researchers take this kind of metric, uh, this a, a simple question asked about whether or not someone believes that uh, people around them are generally trustworthy, what do it, what are economists hoping to be able to predict when they plug this information into models? So what they're looking for, and and you hit on something that is a common in, in your question, which is a common confusion. It's the question is whether you trust which is different from whether people are trustworthy. So separating those two from each other, which people have a hard time conceptually doing, is at the root of the the problem with uh, this question. And what economists are looking at, though, uh, when they look at trust, is whether economic exchanges are efficient, whether people cheat or not, whether there's bureaucratic inefficiency, whether people lie to each other inside a firm, so there's less cooperation, there's less production, uh, et cetera. They're sort of trying to look for these types of things. And there are some papers that look at this on a microeconomic level. The big problem is a lot of people then sort of take these micro points and then they sort of throw them onto the macroeconomy without designing any kind of model, any kind of way in which it works, and they just assume it's there. 
right? They kind of overreach a lot. Like one of the most famous papers in this literature is by Zach and Knack in 2001, and they developed this great model of investment that builds on the degree to which uh, people will engage in investing activity based on how much they trust people. And then they take this micro foundation, this good microeconomic model, and then run a bunch of models to say, well, is it correlated with growth? So they overreach a lot. Okay. So uh, you guys in in digging into this uh, are trying to poke holes or you found holes in the trust literature as a as a useful tool. So why? Who cares? So this project started as a book chapter in a book I'm writing for Cambridge University Press about how immigration affects economic growth in the United States. So one of the questions is, does immigrant effect on American culture affect potentially economic growth going forward? And the real sort of only look that economists look at when in terms of like cultural impacts on growth is in the trust literature. And before getting into it, I was vaguely aware of this literature, but I knew it was vast. I knew it had a lot of empirical support. So I had respect for it without knowing much about it. But after digging into it, after reading uh, about 100 papers, after reading books by economists about it, after replicating some of the results, it turns out to be pretty poor and not really believable. The methods, the models, everything are bad. So this made me, frankly, a little mad. Uh, it made me distrust a lot of the, the economics literature surrounding this. Like, I'm trained in economics. I have a lot of respect for economics and the methods. And a lot of economists I respect love the trust literature. Um, but I don't think very many of them have really dug in to a lot of these problems. So it was sort of a um, labor of, of surprise and, and, and a little uh, anger. And so uh, to the extent that, that economists and other researchers would like to use this one question, this is the primary question that, that they use, there are three possible answers. There's no, there's no hard data, really. This is all just self-reported a sense that people have about really whether or not they themselves are trusting. Um, you know, is is that one of the one of the key problems that you point to? Yeah, and just the problems in how they ask um, this question, the results over time. So, to give you an example, Iran, uh, they did a survey, and I believe it was two thousand five, two thousand eight. World Value Survey, they asked the trust trust question, and about sixty five percent of Iranians said yes, they trust. And then the next years was a two thousand ten to fourteen when they did the survey that dropped to eleven percent. So, you know, there, there was no nuclear war in Iran in between. There was no, like, devastation that would have changed this. But there was something fundamentally going on with the way they're asking this question so that I don't even trust the quality of the data in most of these countries. Yeah, the same thing happened with the U.S. You know, if you look at the World Value Survey versus the General Social Survey, in some years, they're wildly different, upwards of seven points. And they're the exact same question on those surveys. Okay, so the the fact that d data will vary wildly for no apparent reason is a reason to distrust the the tr whatever trend line they they've assembled with that data. Yeah, the um, you know, the assumption is that trust in a lot of these papers, trust is caused by like deep cultural factors that go back centuries maybe even longer. So we shouldn't see a lot of variation from year to year. You know, maybe if there's like a famine, millions of people starve to death, 
People don't trust each other as much because they're trying to survive and steal food from each other. Yeah, maybe. But, you know, from 1970 to 1980 in the United States, if the trust level changes by like 15 points or it changes in 15 points relative to the real value survey for no particular reason and it goes back and back and forth and bounces back and forth, there's something going on there. And it has to do with the question design. All right. So to the extent that researchers are using uh, this trust question, building it into models and trying to give it some sort of predictive oomph, uh, what are they what can what are they trying to say with some confidence about culture, about prosperity, about uh, how uh, we ought to understand the importance of some cultural institutions? So they're trying to argue that uh, culture or specifically trust is causally related to growth, meaning that tr more trust leads to more economic growth, higher incomes, et cetera. That's what people are trying to show. That's what some of this research finds. And all we're saying is based on the evidence that we have now, based on the lack of models, the lack of uh, the poor empirics, the poor survey question methods, you cannot say that based on what we have currently. They're really overreaching to a degree that should be a big red flag to everybody looking at this. And and yet uh, you, you said that this literature is widely trusted, widely cited, uh, widely believed to be valid. What's what's what is the what are the specific problems with with that? If as you as you say, if that's true, that uh, there are significant problems with it. Well, most of the criticisms that we identify in this paper, we didn't come up with. They are reported in bits and pieces by other people in different journals going back over 20 years. It's just they've never sort of hit the mainstream. And I can hypothesize for why that is. I think one reason is, and this is sort of embarrassing as economists, um, I mean, you, you got your master's in econ, so you know this, Caleb. Um, we don't really know what causes economic growth. We have a bunch of different theories. So I learned in grad school that it's a Z. That famous residual, <laughs> that magical, <laughs> that magical residual. Um, whatever Z is, Z causes it. Um, and that's not the pronoun Z, that is the variable Z. That's right. Um, so Z causes growth, but that's embarrassing for economists to try to figure this out. So perversely, I think, and this is just a flaw, I think, in human psychology. When there's a really important question where you very much want to answer, I think we sort of lower our standards sometimes um, for the evidence and for the model to try to answer that. And I think that has happened in the economics literature to some extent with this question. Fortunately, though, the 30 or 40 people we cite in this paper who have criticism of the trust literature, they're also almost all economists. So there is a recognition there's a problem with this. There's lots of papers going back and forth. It's just like with any big literature that seeks to explain the world, people focus on the big headlines that say this is an easy, simple answer, and they ignore sort of all the nitty gritty and the criticisms. All right. So are there important stories that are widely distributed that based on what uh, we know or don't know about trust, we can say, eh, it's probably not right. Some of the interesting stories have to do with the experimental economics literature. So there's experiments that we do. Vernon Smith was an economist famous for this, where he put people in a laboratory setting, 
see how they behave in games, whether they trust other anonymous people in games, and whether that leads to higher monetary payoffs. And what's fascinating is the trusting behavior in these games is not related at all to how these same people in the same experiments answer the trust question. So people who say they don't trust tend to trust other people a lot and vice versa. Uh, It's just not really related to this. So that's one of the the funny things. When we have this micro, super micro level data, experimental evidence, it basically shows that there's no relationship to this big question. Yeah. And it even shows some of the nuance of the question itself because you have multiple types of trust. You know, there one of of the experimental papers broke it down into preference-based trust or belief-based trust. So basically, preference-based trust being your risk aversion preferences, how much risk-taking you want to engage in, whether you're, you know, whether you're a giving person or not, your altruism. And then you have the belief-based, which is sort of, you know, are people in general trustworthy? So you have to recognize that there are multiple components within trust that we might not be measuring. So what does it mean if you personally trust like everybody you know in your personal life and that you interact with economically, but you say people are not trustworthy or not or not trusting or you don't trust people? Um, how do you reconcile those two? I think you run for president. <laughs> <laughs> Serious answer, but c- please continue. So, <laughs> so... That just points to me that there are serious problems with how people understand and how they respond to this question that make it so far an insurmountable challenge. So uh, if you had to create a proxy for this trust question that gets at this problem more clearly, is is there a way to do that? Or is is this just an exercise that just doesn't have validity in your view and and ought to be removed from various models. We have tried to find something that's a proxy globally that we can use for cross-country comparisons. And I'm not, I don't think one really exists. Like anything else you can think of from like, you know, crime or or, or whatnot. I mean, there's lots of other really solid explanations for those things. But we decided to take a lot of the lessons from the trust literature and to do it in the best possible way we could to run these regressions um, within within the United States. So part of the problem is, you know, this cross-cultural issues with the questions. So we did, all right, in the United States entirely, let's do it by region in the United States. There's, uh, was it nine different regions? Yeah, nine census divisions nine, across the U.S. Yeah, nine census divisions to see if there's a relationship between reports on the trust score over time and changes in income and right so we you know collected great data on economic growth per capita growth we collected data on you know, the answers to the trust question from the GSS and we just did some super simple regressions using best methods we could to figure out whether you know there's a correlation between the two and we found nothing frankly so at this point if we were the first ones to start working on this literature, right? If all these papers before us had never started and we were the first ones and we did this to begin with, we would just never touch it again and never publish it. And that would be that for us. I wouldn't lose any sleep over it thinking that I had missed out on some wonderful opportunity. Where did this come from? Like, to the extent that this is a field of study with lots of citations, lots of papers, a vast literature that is well-regarded generally, 
What kicked off this, uh, this literature? So the first paper that took a deep dive into this was by Knack and Kiefer. It was published in 1997 in a quarterly journal of economics. And they did uh, this cross-section where they took a look at 29 total countries, um, their trust levels, and then they compared it to levels of uh, income and economic growth. And they took 27 rich OECD countries, and they threw in two poor countries of India and Nigeria. And that is literally the sample of countries that they used to come up with this broad, vast comparison um, of countries over time and to argue that trust is causally related, that it causes um, economic growth and income. And I believe it was at one year that they took a look at, like one year of data that they took a look at. So it wasn't over time. It wasn't even that many countries, and they come up with this vast, sort of seemingly life-changing finding for macroeconomists to try to explain growth, and it's a pretty thin read to lay that kind of finding upon. And it didn't get any better either, because the next paper that came out was Zach and Knack in 2001, and they only extended their sample up to 41 countries, including a few more in the developing world. So they used the same pool with a few extras and the same methods to derive the same conclusions. The paper is Trust Doesn't Explain Regional U.S. Economic Development and Five Other Theoretical and Empirical Problems with the Trust Literature by Alex Narasta and Andrew Forrester, uh, both of the Cato Institute. You can get your copy of this paper to dig in and try to answer this question better than these guys did at cato.org. Is there such a thing as a kinder, gentler socialism, the kind that people like Bernie Sanders actively support? According to Republican U.S. Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky, the case against socialism, also the title of his new book, rests on the history of socialism, and it's not pretty. He spoke at a Cato event in Chicago in November. I love Cato, and they're one of my favorite think tanks, and I think they're necessary in town because... uh, most everybody in town wants something. In fact, I think most people who show up at my office, I call them the beseechers. They have both hands out and they want something from government and they think it's government's job to help them. What I like are the people who come to my office and say, can you get government off of my back? So about a year or so ago, about a year or so ago, maybe a little longer, my wife and I started talking about this book, The Case Against Socialism. I'd been teaching a course at uh, George Washington called the Dystopian Novel. And as I taught this uh, course, the kids kept asking as we'd go through sort of the history, really from Dostoevsky in the mid part of the 19th century all the way through uh, into contemporary uh, dystopian novels like the Minority Report, the Precogs, and pre-diagnosing crime and dystopian uh, movies and novels of today, the kids kept asking, they would say, well, it seems like as we watch history and we watch the history going on, that it always seems like socialism winds up in violence or authoritarianism. And that's sort of the theme of this, because the other side will argue that they're now for a kinder, gentler form of socialism. And when you say, well, what about this socialism? They say, no, no, that's not it at all. But initially, when each of these socialist paradigms came out, they kind of were for it until they were not for it. 
you know, Stalin had his apologists. You'll remember the intellectuals in our country were gaga over Stalin. They traveled over there. New York Times, Walter Durante won a Pulitzer, talking about how great Stalin was and how great the economy was. I think they were only showing him, you know, the high-ranking villages where the, the government officials were. But it was, a, it was just a, a disastrous untruth that the New York Times retracted, I think, last week or something. I said, <laughs> 70 years later, they retracted uh, their praise for Walter Durante. But it was time and time again, even in the early or late 30s, as people began to realize how terrible Hitler was, the socialists were already kicking him out of the socialist club. Because they're like, oh, no, we don't want him. Let's, let's say that he is a, sort of a bastardization or an extension or extremism of capitalism. They didn't want him in the club. But if you look at Hitler, and we take the time to represent this, his 25 points of his Workers' Party or his Socialist Party read like the Communist Manifesto. It's all about collective ownership. It's all about collectivization. It's all about subjecting the individual to the collective desire. But the socialists didn't want him in the club because obviously there were these things like the Holocaust that weren't, you know, that were such an abomination. Nobody wanted him in the socialist club, but he was proud to be a socialist. He said he had a unique form of socialism. It was national socialism. He was going to avoid sort of the class warfare. But still you ask yourself, how could a book like this be necessary? Particularly for those who have read uh, Mises' Socialism or read The Road to Serfdom. Why do we have to have another book? Well, look around. Look at the youth. Look at the, the data from asking young people. I was at Columbia University recently. I said, how many uh, people out there have a good perception of socialism? And about a third of them raised their hand. The polling data shows half of, of young people think socialism is a good idea. So I think there is a necessity to go back over some of this. The only good news is about half or more will say they're favorable to socialism, but then only about 20% of them can give a definition even anywhere similar to what socialism actually is. So they're for it, but they have no idea what it is. And I, that could be good because we can inform them what socialism is, maybe they'll change their mind, or it could be bad that they're so vague in their notions of what they want, they're going to accept something really terrible before they know what it is. So the idea is very, it, it's an incredibly important one, and people say, well, we debunked all of that so long ago. Even you go back to the the latter part of the 19th century, and the first thing that they went, you know, that they had to correct Marx on was Marx said, well, things are worth the labor you put into them. So if I build this television set and it was 100 hours worth of labor, that's what it's worth. And if the capitalist takes 10% out of there, the capitalist is stealing that from the workers. And that was his whole sort of economic argument. And the Austrians came along and said, well, no, it's, it's worth the subjective value of that, and that includes the value that the capitalist puts in for deferring his immediate wants and, or her immediate wants and desires and putting off those to save money for capital. We won that argument. We've won the intellectual argument completely. We won the argument over incentives. The, you don't have the proper incentives for a society if you don't get to keep most of what you earn. And it diminishes the more the government takes of what you earn. And yet we come back to this time and time again. Apologist for Hitler, apologist for Stalin. The problem with Mao, who could have probably maybe been worse than both, is that kids have no idea even who he is anymore. Although the Little Red Book sold millions, maybe even billions of copies, and a lot of that went to Americans in the 60s and 70s. We tell the story of the Great Famine in the book, and the Great Famine's from like 1958 to 1960. During the Great Famine, it's estimated somewhere 30, 40 million people died. 
We tell the story of a, a provincial official. He's in Beijing, but he's told to go out to the provinces because there's a story that the dead are lying in the street, starving, dying, and that the dogs are eating the dead. This official, like so many government officials, took his notepad and he went out there and he studied the problem, wrote up his report, and he came back to Beijing. He says, it's absolutely not true. The dogs are not eating the dead in the street because they ate the dogs long ago. And you think, oh, well, gosh, that, you're just talking about Mao and, you know, red Chinese communism. That can never happen again. Well, the socialists and the leftists in our country and around the world have been loving Chavez and loving Venezuela for the last decade or more. You've got people like Oliver Stone have written not one, but two biopics glorifying the life of Chavez. I'm wondering if the trilogy will have the people eating their pets. I'm not sure he's going to include that part. But everybody was praising him. Socialism was so great and poverty was going down until it wasn't anymore. The average person in Venezuela now has lost 20 pounds. People literally are eating their pets. We tell the story of a 16-year-old girl who's part of a gang, and what they do is they police the dumpsters. She has like six dumpsters, and they're hers, and they'll fight you for them, but they're getting the scraps of food out of the, uh, the dumpsters. Just incredibly sad. But you know what the Bernie will say? Bernie used to love Venezuela, but now he's like, no, 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 that's not the, that's not the, that's not the socialism we're for anymore. And so then they go one step further, and they say, well, it's, it's Scandinavia. You know, we want, we're for Scandinavian socialism. The only problem is, is Scandinavia is really not socialist. And most of the policies that actually have made them rich are the opposite of what Bernie's for. And yet the media has accepted that. And this is an important argument because you can make the, the philosophic argument for individual liberty and against collectivism and against subjecting the individual to the desires of the collective. We make those arguments, but practical arguments are important too. So we make the argument, we look through and look at Scandinavia. Mises um, and Rothbard had a conversation one time and Rothbard said, what's the one a short, simple definition of whether or not you have capitalism or not? And Mises' response to him was whether or not you have a private stock exchange where you can make sales in a stock exchange. Well, all of Scandinavian countries have been part of private stock exchanges for the last 150 years. They have private property. Their corporations are by and large owned by private corporations. They have really thrived in many ways and for many different reasons, but it isn't because of high taxes on business. So in the Trump tax cut, the Trump Republican tax cut, we went from 35% corporate rate in our country to 21. That just got down to where Scandinavia has been for the last 20 or 30 years. Scandinavia has actually had low biz, business taxes. Now they do have high taxes on other things, but this is another sort of big lie that you get from Bernie. Bernie and Elizabeth Warren and AOC, they tell you, well, we're going to give you all this free stuff, all this uh, socialist goodies, welfare state goodies. We're going to give it to you, but we're going to tax the top 1%, just like they do in Scandinavia. Well, that's the complete opposite of what they do in Scandinavia. They have a less progressive tax code than we do. They have a 25% VAT, or a type of a sales tax, that is on the working class as well as everyone else. But the working class pay a lot of taxes by paying that 25% sales tax. They also have a 60% income tax that starts around 60,000. If you look at the upper crust, it's actually lower taxes in Scandinavia for the upper crust than it is in our country. Because what we've done in our country over time is we've actually dropped most of the people on the bottom off of the rolls. I said this on The View the other day and I got hooted in the heart, don't ever go on The View. I would, I would, I would, don't go on that show. 
But I said, look, most people under $50,000 don't pay any income tax. And everybody hooted and hollered and said that was absolutely wrong. And we actually finally got one of the newspapers that does the political fact, which is usually not really on our side to say it was absolutely true. We've done it repeatedly. Most people under $50,000, the latest tax cut, uh, I think it gives you 12,500. So if you have a husband, wife, and two kids, you've got you know essentially $50,000 in deductions already. But the thing is, is we have to go through whether it's true or not that they're socialist, whether it's true or not that the big government is why they've succeeded. And so you get this from them and they'll say, well, they have longevity greater than ours and infant mortality less than ours. And that's because they have socialized medicine. But if you look at the statistics, they do have more longevity and less infant mortality. And they have for 100 years. You can go back 100 years. They've always been ahead of us. And it may have something to do with their culture. In fact, there's a famous Milton Friedman comment. He says, this Swedish, this Swedish economist comes up to him and says, well, we have no poverty in Sweden. And Milton Friedman looked at him and he says, well, we have no poverty among Swedish Americans in America. <laughs> and it's true. Every comparison, Swedish Americans score above the average for the rest of us. I don't know what happened to the rest of us, but the Swedish Americans... The Norwegian Americans, the Danish Americans, they're all above average. And, um, but they're also making more than the Swedes at home, the Norwegians at home. They, they, they just are succeeding. There's a guy named Sandaji who's written a lot on this. He's from Sweden. And he just says it's, you know, it's probably a cultural phenomenon and maybe we should learn something from their culture, but it isn't something coming from their government. Milton Friedman at one point viewed the Federal Reserve as effectively a fourth branch of government. At the Cato Institute's Monetary Conference in November, Sir Paul Tucker argued that the Fed is not exactly a fourth branch. Tucker is the author of Unelected Power, The Quest for Legitimacy in Central Banking, and The Regulatory State. The debate about whether central banks should be independent, insulated from politics, is typically couched almost entirely expressed almost entirely in the language of economics. And I don't think that will do. And it's not just that I don't think it will do in principle, is that I don't think that is sufficient to find central banks, independent central banks, a safe place in a healthy constitutional um, democracy. I think the debate has to um, open a door to our deepest political values constitutionalism, representative democracy, and the rule of law. So when Jim asked me to give a speech entitled Central Banking and the Rule of Law, I was, I was delighted. In, in Munich at the Siemensstiftung earlier this year, I gave a lecture, a much longer lecture on central banking and constitutionalism. I now just need to find one on central banking and democracy. Actually, democracy will come up in what I've got to to say as when it's balanced with the values of the, of the rule of law. So the two quotes there are saying Milton Friedman uh, marking the anniversary of the Federal Reserve, 50th anniversary in the early 1960s, saying, is this an objectionable fourth um, branch? The, t the tone of, of, of Friedman's testimony was, well, it pr probably is, and that's, and that's a bad um, thing. I will try and persuade you that it isn't a... Um, a fourth branch. And then Larry Summers saying institutions can do the work of rules and monetary rules should be avoided. Instead, institutions should be drafted to solve 
time and consistency problems, which is expressed, which is the language of economics starts to meet something kind of beyond economics. And I, will, I may say something if I have time about how there's a gap in that and also a gap in the economics literature um, about this. And then, and then Henry Simons in the 1930s, delegation to administrative authorities with substantial discretionary power must be invoked sparingly. And if democratic institutions are to be preserved, it is utterly inappropriate in the monetary um, field. And um, I think we should take that seriously, even though I'm not going to land in the same place. In fact, I think in some respects he was deeply mistaken. Um, but there's no doubting the power of central banks, the, the personal people who control the monetary levers have the, have the power, the capability of imposing surprise inflation or deflation on the society. And that's a measure of taxation that redistributes resources. The lender of last resort might in principle be able to choose between winners and losers. A central bank who can choose their counterparties, their collateral, um, the terms of their lending facilities, has it within their capability to steer credit um, to certain places and away from certain places. And then finally, a central bank um, who is also a supervisor and a regulator um, is also a lawmaker. We, we, regulation is a kind of euphemism. Regulations are legally binding norms that can be enforced with the coercive power of the state. That's what lawmaking is. So this is quite a, this is quite a bundle of, of, of powers. Um, so why, under what circumstances might it be tolerable, even more than tolerable, under what circumstances might it even be important to have an independent monetary authority? So let's change, let's move away from economics entirely and think about our deep, deep political values. Typically, when we talk about the separation of powers, these days people tend to have in mind the separation between an independent judiciary and the rest of, of government. Um, in the 13th century in my country, um, barons rose up and said the king will not, shall not, impose taxes on people without that being supported in an assembly. And um, this is a, another profound part of the separation of powers. And so it means that if you hold the monetary power, if the king, the president, the queen, prime minister, the chancellor, holds the monetary power, they don't need to go to Congress or Parliament um, for supply. Um, they don't need to get approval for their projects. They can just create the resources um, to fund things themselves. Um, the last people, the last people who should um, have control of the monetary levers are the elected um, executive um, branch, which is actually saying something, many people in this room, about half people in this room, probably the same age as me. And if you think that in most, most advanced economy countries, without an independent central bank in the 70s and 80s, uh, when monetary policy went wrong, um, it was partly because it was precisely under the control of the elected executive branch. This was not only bad economic policy, this was a violation of our deepest, um, our deepest um, values of the separation of fiscal powers. Um, 
So if that's the case, um, we can think of the old gold standard, um, the 19th century gold standard, not the gold exchange standard of the 20th century. We can think of the old um, gold standard as an earlier era's attempt to, to capture, to preserve the separation of powers in the, in the monetary field. Whenever um, sterling came off, went back on to the gold standard during the 19th century wars and financial crises, this was done with parliamentary um, sanction, not on the will of the, of the prime minister. Um, the gold standard, therefore, was not only quite a good economic framework, it actually was consistent with our deep values. Now, I'm one of those people that think under full franchise democracy, um, the gold standard could never gain acceptance because it entails more volatility um, in jobs and output than the people would be prepared to tolerate. I think the gold standard was, the, was an artifact of essentially property-owning um, democracies. There's room for disagreement about that. But if, 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 that, if something like that is correct, then we should see um, the delegation to, a, to an independent central bank as an attempt to sustain the separation of powers, the separation of fiscal powers in a world with, um, with fiat money. At the pleasure, at the behest, and at the pleasure of the assembly. So far from Milton Friedman's complaint that it's a fourth branch. It isn't a full, full branch, fourth branch because Congress or Parliament or the Bundestag can take it away and resort to monetary um, financing. Some of this was a bit implicit in what David was saying in the last session. And far from being objectionable, it is actually a way of underpinning some of our deepest values. Leszek Balsarowicz has been widely credited with the economic transformation of Poland. He liberalized the prices of most consumer goods and initiated sound fiscal and monetary measures designed to balance the budget and end hyperinflation. At the Cato Institute in November, Balsarowicz detailed how various institutional regimes produce good and bad transitions. In my professional life, I've dealt with monetary issues, fiscal issues, but first of all, with institutions or institutional systems for the simple reasons that large differences in this system are the most important determinant of large differences in the standard of living, <coughs> broadly defined. And there are some interesting comparisons. There are countries like North and South Korea, which used to be equally poor in the 50s, and then North Korea has 7% of South Korean per capita income. <clears throat> Less drastic, but still, amazing differences have appeared between East and West Germany. Poland and Spain in 1950 have about the same per capita income. In 1990, we have only 42%. <clears throat> so what is behind these huge differences which appeared in a relatively short time, it is not location, it is not climate, it is not culture in the sense of informal norms. First of all, there are huge differences in institutional systems. And this is why studying these differences, studying these systems and their impact upon 
standard of living and studying the changes, it's one of the most important subjects in social sciences. And I think still it is under research. Now, uh, I start with this two stylish facts <coughs> regarding the transition, <coughs> transition regarding the dynamics of system. The dynamic of a system depends on its nature. And I would oppose, I would contrast two kinds of a system. The one which have a real life manifestation, I'm coming to this, it's called social communism, was characterized by the total concentration of power, political power. And it could be foreseen to produce very bad economic results, but it has lasted. The Soviet Union has lasted for what, seven to eight years. So why it has lasted? Naive question. <laughs> it has lasted, because, has lasted because of intimidation. And intimidation can, can work over even a longer time, despite very bad economic and other outcomes. So this is like an example of a very bad system on all the possible measures, including bad standard of living, but also fear vis-a-vis -vis the state. Contrast this with a system when power is well dispersed, which presumes freedom rights, <coughs> well protected. Call it free market economy plus rule of law <coughs> regime. <coughs> we know from vast experience that these systems tend to perform much better. <coughs> Does it guarantee that they last? Is superior economic performance uh, sufficient conditions for these superior system to last? Not necessarily. They are not threatened from outside. They are threatened from inside by various interest groups. Anti-liberal or anti-freedom interest groups, we know from vast literature and history that they may be divided into a commercial one, but they are also very aggressive, ideological, anti-freedom interest group. We can undermine the system. We turn it into the worst one. <clears throat> and we are watching it now in some countries. Of course, the conclusion is defend. Bad things cannot defend themselves. Good ideas require very good and massive communication. Without that, they would lose. Repugnant Laws, the new book by Keith Whittington, provides a political history of how the Supreme Court has exercised the power of judicial review over federal legislation from the adoption of the Constitution to the present. So how has the court done? Whittington spoke at the Cato Institute in November. Um, ultimately, I think there have been over 1,300 cases in which the court um, has seriously evaluated um, the application of a federal statute um, in a case uh, in front of them, a quarter of those leading to some kind of invalidation or refusal um, to apply the statute and the case um, at hand, um, and uh, roughly three quarters of them resulting in the court upholding um, those congressional statutes. Um, that's a lot more cases than we tend to um, take into account when we're thinking about the history of judicial review. Um, certainly, we tend to, I think, ignore 
ignore all the cases in which the court tends to uphold um, acts of Congress against constitutional challenge. Um, those are less politically exciting. They may seem less consequential, um, but I think actually they've been an important aspect of how the court has exercised power judicial review over time, has built up the powers of Congress over time, and also built up its own power um, as a court capable um, of articulating um, limits and hearing constitutional challenges um, to Congress um, on the whole. Um, it's also true, I think, the distribution of those cases um, uh, might be uh, surprising. So, for example, um, there are far more uh, instances in which the court was evaluating acts of Congress um, in the early American history than we tend to give credit for. Um, our core um, approach to thinking about um, uh, the American Constitution and how the court exercises your view um, between the founding era and the Civil War uh, tends to emphasize that the court has only struck down statutes um, twice uh, during that period in uh, Marbury versus Madison early in the Jefferson administration um, and then Dred Scott just before um, the Civil War. I think that significantly underestimates how often the court uh, was called upon to enforce limits um, on congressional power. Um, sometimes during that early period, the court was in fact upholding um, uh, acts that Congress had taken. Um, but in many instances, the court, in fact, was imposing limitations um, on congressional power uh, during that early period. And it's through that effort to enforce constitutional limits um, on Congress that was building up the practice of judicial review and encouraging more litigants to come to the federal courts um, to ask for their protection uh, from abusive government officials, including abusive legislatures um, who exceeded their power uh, more generally. I also think that these um, cases um, ultimately are much more varied than we tend to give credit for. We tend to pay attention to um, the cases that seem most historically significant, they're most politically consequential, and often that means politically con uh, uh, controversial um, at the time. But a great deal of what the court um, does, including instances when it's actually striking down statutes, um, are not necessarily politically controversial and often involve policies that are not um, all that salient to political actors more generally. One of the reasons why a great deal of judicial review um, flies below the, our historical radar um, is precisely because at the time uh, they were not nearly as controversial and contested and didn't create the kind of uproar um, that we uh, tend to focus our attention on um, even when we're thinking about this historically. It also reflects the fact that I think the court itself has sometimes um, tried to obscure um, what it has done. Uh, through much of the 19th century, the court uh, tended to follow, I think, the approach that um, Justice Joseph Story um, emphasized when he was writing circuit and then uh, asked to uh, rule on a case um, involving a constitutional challenge to Congress. Um, and in that case, he emphasized, um, in his opinion, that um, uh, judges should generally not presume that Congress meant to violate the Constitution. Um, they should do all that they can to read statutes um, so as to make them consistent uh, with constitutional requirements. He did not suggest that meant, therefore, that judges should be deferential um, to what Congress has done. He did not suggest um, that means that courts should, therefore, avoid um, having to resolve constitutional questions. Um, instead, it was a question about how he went about the task and how courts in general went about the task of trying to enforce um, constitutional limits on Congress, which often required um, being clear about what those limits are, articulating and pronouncing and um, uh, uh, um, emphasizing um, those limits on congressional power, um, but then trying to uh, resolve the cases in front of them in ways um, that prevents Congress um, and government officials who are acting on behalf of Congress 
from enforcing um, those legal requirements in a way that uh, conflicts with the Constitution um, to uh, the parties um, in front of them. That also means what the court has done over time is try to limit how um, statutes should be applied in particular cases. And they ultimately are constraining what Congress does and limiting the scope of statutes um, through that effort of focusing on how does the statute apply in this particular case, rather than simply declaring that statutes on the whole um, are null and void um, in their entirety. Um, the court certainly does that on occasion, but it's far more often leveraging the power of judicial review um, and in order to enforce constitutional limits um, in the particular cases um, in front of it. In a new online series created in collaboration between the Cato Institute and the Brookings Institution, Sphere is designed to create the gold standard for civil discussions of policy issues and political philosophy based on common values and shared objectives. Developed in response to the current tone of public discourse, Sphere sets an example of constructive engagement on areas of disagreement while emphasizing areas of agreement. The objective is to debate contentious public policy issues in a productive and engaging manner to lower the temperature without abandoning deeply held ideas and principles. You can find the first three episodes of Sphere at projectsphere.org. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.